Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome to Evil Pudding, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And what's up? Happy Halloween. Halloween? Mm-hmm. That sounds weird. I've never heard of it. It's, it's our Halloween. Who calls it that? Me. Okay. Another Courtneyism for the day? Yes. And I've been super excited about this week because we're doing a spooky episode. I'm super excited because I'm back over here behind the fucking computer and not reading and not talking, telling a story. Yeah. So you just nicer. get to sit back and enjoy the show. So much nicer over here. <laughs> well, you have to give your input, of course. Of course, but I don't have to research and I don't have to do all the hard work. We really enjoyed your episode. It was messed up last week. was a patisode. I enjoyed it, but I didn't because I told you that case had just fucked me up for so long. I think it messed a lot of people up. I've, you know what's so funny, Pat? I got messages because <laughs> that was your first true crime episode. Yeah, yeah. I've done the, the prisons. Yeah, the, the prison before and the cryptids. But I've got several messages that said, uh, Courtney, you should let Patrick do more true crime. Like I have you tied up in a basement yeah, somewhere. Like you, he's like, you don't let me. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like I don't. Well, no. It's not that you don't let me, but you do such no, a good I job know, of it. It's hard for me. Like I always worry about maintaining like the standards you do. The level oh, of hush, you, you did amazing. No, I'm just saying, but like, I worry about seriously doing it amazing. deep dives because I don't know that I do. I don't. Plus, they mess with your mental state. They fuck with your brain. Oh, they do. That, that story fuck with my brain. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked about the couple parts. I don't really want to rehash them on here. No, so. no need to. Yeah. Trying Damn to move lightsaber on. lightsaber fucks me up. That was the worst part. Yeah. If you haven't listened to uh, last week's episode um, covering uh, the runaway devil, Definitely go back and listen to the Patisode. I think it was episode 37. 37, yeah. So this is episode 38. This is our Halloween week episode. And we hit 10,000 listens over the weekend. Oh my gosh, we're well over that now. And I just cannot believe it. It's insane. Thank you guys so much. And we've... The most important thing, we've made like so many strong connections along the way. And not just with like listeners, but like other podcasts and listeners. There's a lot of listeners that like they're following, you know, obviously you run the Instagram, but they're hitting me up to follow me on regular. I'm like, you don't want to follow my Instagram. It's bored as fuck. If I put anything, it's like a dog (laughs) or a dumbass meme. Like that's, that's all you're going to get out of me. (laughs) That's what they love. Every six months I'll put something on it. You're a simple man. (laughs) They love it. I don't even post on it. It's like once every six months I'm like... Here's my dog. I know. Here's the, here's a picture of my dog. Here's the other dog. <laughs> two months later, like. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, speaking of other uh, podcasts, yes. that was a good segue. Thank segue. you. For, That's what I'm here for. See, this thank is what, you this is what for I do. setting me up for success this today, is what Patrick. I do. Uh, this week, Patrick and I have been listening to Lisa Marie from Coffee in Crime. I fucking love her. And Lisa is a true crime podcaster, and every week she sits down with a cup of coffee and gives us a very well thought out, genuine account of a case in her amazing New Zealand accent. I'm obsessed with her I know voice. You are. I could seriously just sit down and listen to her talk about paint drying and I'd I be know, entertained. I know, I know. You've said that so many times. I love it. I even told her that and she just laughed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She's probably like, you're weird because I don't have an accent. I know. Like, yeah. Well, Y'all are the ones with the accent. <laughs> Actually, this afternoon, I listened to her episode covering Nicholas Barclay and uh, I 10 out of 10 just recommend her. Really? She's just amazing. That's that a yet. crazy case to begin with, but she did an awesome job. Uh, So take a second to listen to the Coffee and Crime trailer, and we will be right back. Hello, lovely listeners of Evil Pudding Podcast. My name is Lisa Marie Imray, and I am the host of Coffee and Crime, a true crime podcast, where each week I sit down with a cup of coffee and I talk about any kind of true crime story. So if you're interested in true crime, which I think is a no-brainer, since you're here listening to the amazing Courtney and Patrick, or you like drinking coffee, then feel free to give Coffee and Crime a listen too. It is available on all major podcast platforms, and you can get in touch on Facebook or Instagram at Coffee and Crime Podcast. The DMs are always open for you to slide on in, and we can talk about anything true crime related, or you can recommend a case. So until then, be safe, be good, be better and all that cheesy crap, and I will catch you over at Coffee and Crime. And now, back over to Courtney and Patrick. Okay, guys, make sure to follow Lisa Marie 
uh, on Instagram at coffee in crime. That's the letter in in between coffee yep, and letter crime. in. And then also listen to her everywhere that you listen to podcasts. She also does TikToks and she's hilarious. Like she's she's amazing. Y'all will love her. Yep, go check her out. So that said, do we have any more news? Uh, no, but we still have all our socials. You can go check us out. I can follow us on Instagram. Um, we have a Patreon too. Yeah, we have Patreon. Yep. Still mm-hmm. adding some stuff to that. We're probably going to go live Halloween-ish. Yep. Do some spooky stories. Speaking of which, that that's a good part right there. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you, you'd put it out on social media um, for listener spooky stories. Yes. Paranormal that's, encounters. That's next episode. And we've gotten a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so if y'all have any more. Yeah, if you have Even if we them, can't fit them in to next episode, keep Keep sending keep them because we'll keep doing episodes. We'll keep doing episodes. We'll put them on Patreon. We'll do we'll do whatever with them. We'll, we'll use them. I was so happy we that so many people sent so many stories. Like I'm yeah, we super got a bunch, stoked, man. And not just from the normal listeners. Some of our podcast friends were like, "Hey, I got a story for you." Yeah, cool, absolutely. So we're stoked about that. But um, okay, let's go ahead and hop into our spooky tale today. Ooh, ooh. You ready? I mean, yeah. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> So I was watching one of my favorite scary movies. Patrick, you may know this. Oh, you made me watch it the other day randomly. I'm like, why are we watching this? It's called When a Stranger Calls in lieu of spooky season. Let's get real. Any season is spooky season I mean, for we watch horror movies 24-7 to like 365. So. But I, yeah, I wondered why you wanted to watch this the other day. I'm like, it's like 10 years old. Like, what are we doing? I actually was watching, yeah, like Pat said, the 2006 remake starring Camilla Bell. But the original one starring Carol Kane and Colleen Dewhurst is one that you all may be more familiar with. It's super popular. Um, It has the same name. And basically the premise of both is much the same. So a young babysitter is in a home with sleeping children and a strange man keeps calling her, asking her, have you checked the children before hanging up? I wonder where they got the title from. Frightened, the babysitter calls the police who instruct her to keep the stranger on the phone for longer so they can get a trace on the number. The babysitter then receives one final call from the stranger asking if she has checked the children. She tries to keep him on the line a bit longer this time. Immediately after the stranger hangs up, the phone rings once more. It's the police. They inform her that the call is coming from inside the house. That's what makes it so fucking scary. After watching this movie, I started to wonder, as I do, where the idea of, quote, the call is coming from inside the house came from. It mm-hmm. had to come from somewhere. So many horror movies they are based on do. factual events, after all. I mean, look, we covered the Gainesville Ripper, which was the basis for Scream. We've right. covered so many other ones that have been basis for horror stories. So I did a little snooping around and found the horrifying inspiration for those thrilling films. And although the story is a bit different, since we all know Hollywood tends to take liberties to entertain consumers, it's a terrifying story nonetheless. They leave out a lot of the gruesome stuff sometimes and make it more Hollywoody, and and there's all of a sudden a love interest involved. Of course. So today, my friends, we will be speaking about the case that inspired the movie When a Stranger Calls, and that is the 1950 unsolved murder of 13-year-old Janet Chrisman. Yes, this case is sadly still unsolved. I'm sorry, guys. So if you're brave enough, let's dive right in. So Janet Chrisman was born March 21st, 1936, in a place called Boonville, Missouri. Boonville? Yeah, so we're in Missouri today. That sounds I don't like, think we've had a case in Missouri yet. That sounds like in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. And if you've ever been to Boondocks. Missouri, everything's in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. <laughs> She was the oldest daughter of Charles and Lula Chrisman, which I think is the prettiest name, Lula. Lula, not Mm -hmm. Lulu or Lola. Lula, yeah. That's not normal. Uh, And it seemed that she had two little sisters named Rita and then a newborn baby sister named Cheryl. The family later moved from Boonville, Missouri to Columbia, Missouri, where they were said to have lived a very simple life. And they they absolutely adored their small community. Well, back then it was kind of, I know it's big, it was still bigger than Boonville. That's all, but yeah, I'm not saying still Columbia's little. big. I'm just saying it's bigger than Boonville. In fact, they owned a restaurant, the Christman family owned a restaurant located on Walnut Street called Ernie's Cafe and Steakhouse, where they all resided on the top floor in the apartment right above the restaurant. I don't know why, and this is a random 
pet rant. Yeah. I've always wanted to like live above the restaurant I worked at. You, I, you always see that in movies, right? You see it in every show, like Roswell and all these movies and like they live right upstairs. Uh, right above the cafe. Right above the cafe. Well, I looked up Ernie's and would you believe that it's still there and it's a really popular place still in Columbia? Probably. And it was owned by the Christman family. So um, it's still there. It looks really cool. It's a cool place to go and visit if you're ever in the area. Well, the interior is very art deco and kind of like a blast from the past. So definitely go and check it out. Yeah, so it's got that old school diner type. Yeah. It's almost like it's a... It's one of those restaurants that you uh, that you go to and you're like, this shit hasn't changed since the 50s. Yeah, absolutely. Like it still has totally the same badass. like everything in there. For sure. Check it out if you can. Send pics. <laughs> Janet was an eighth grader at Jefferson Junior High School, and which is still there, by the way. Okay. And she was, by all accounts, very popular and bubbly, and she did really, really well in school. Now, Janet, when she wasn't singing in her church choir, practicing piano, or studying, could be found helping her family at the cafe or babysitting for a select number of families around town that her parents knew. Right. And that's, you know, this is the 50s, even all the way into the 80s and 90s. That's what you did, especially you as did. a teenage girl. That's what you made well, That's what we did, you know. Well, I teenage didn't. girl. I mowed yeah, lawns. No. You know, boys mowed yeah, lawns we and babysat. did that stuff. Girls babysat. That's what you did. She was, by all accounts, a really hard worker. In fact, on March 18th of 1950, Janet's school was having a dance. So it was a school dance. We all, like, our kids had the eighth grade dance, right? Hands on shoulders, fully extended. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Waddling. <laughs> well, she was asked to attend that dance with a friend. However, she declined. You see, she had been offered a babysitting job the evening of the 18th. So she chose to accept that job so that she could save up to buy herself a burgundy suit for Easter. Like, that's, I have to say that that is a work ethic that no, that's most 13 year olds don't have. It's definitely not a 13 year old's normal work ethic. I mean, I give her credit for, you know, going to She's make amazing. money instead yeah. of going to the dance, but at the same time, Times were different, so maybe the burgundy suit was the shit. I don't know if I'd save up for a burgundy suit personally, but... Well, heck yeah, it was a beautiful burgundy suit. Go get you some, girl. <laughs> I don't even save up for suits now. No, and I would have... Well, at 13, I would have just gone to the school dance and wore what I had, but I mean... Hell no, school dances were lame in eighth grade. <laughs> Says you, you were popular. I wasn't. That I was what I lived for. <laughs> I still went to them all and waited for the end of the road to come on for the end of the night, and that's when you like finally got the nerve up to go ask the girl you liked to dance the last song, like... <laughs> Boys to Men comes jamming on. Oh, my God. The end to of the end. road. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, oh, damn, I got to go ask her now. And then some other dude asked her before you because you're a little weenie and you waited to the last song. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, I mean, that's not like personal experience or anything. Oh, know. no. Definitely. Just guessing what would happen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to less the less cool kids. Yeah. Course. To like other people, not me. <laughs> For sure. That was totally cool in eighth grade. So Janet's mom and dad were protective of their daughter. So she was only allowed to babysit for two of the families in the community, the Romax and the Mueller's. Right. She's 13. So, that's, so two families. You know, even in the 50s, it's still like you want to make sure you know everything about the people that your kid's babysitting for. This evening, she would be babysitting for the Romax three-year-old son, Gregory. And around 7.30, Janet arrived at the Romac residence located on Stewart Road, which was, at that time, a very rural area on the outskirts of Columbia. I'm like, not very out house, there. Though. Yeah, it wouldn't be too far. And not to be dramatic, because this story is dramatic enough, and I'm really not trying to dramatize it, uh, but the night of the 18th was absolutely horrible weather. It was super windy, and that part of Missouri had been experiencing rain and sleet and hail. So you can just picture in your mind's eye this old country house isolated on a country road with this menacing weather. What time of year was it again? Um, it was March. Yeah, so that's mid-tornado yeah. season. You ever been to Missouri in March? It's miserable. And think about this. You're a 13-year-old girl. It's scary to be alone in a house. An unfamiliar, well, I know she's familiar with it, but well, it's not your alone. house at night. It's not your house. You're yeah. still alone. There's no one else in the house except for a three-year-old that you're assuming is probably asleep or you know, watching TV or whatever they did in the 50s. So she was probably creeped out anyways. That would scare the yeah, crap out of me. Got branches banging off the windows and all those kind of things no. that happen. You know oh what I mean? Oh my God. So spooky. You do that now when it happens. I know I do. 
Anyways, she gets to the Romax house where a heavily pregnant Ann Romack had informed Janet that she had already put baby Gregory down for the night. He liked to sleep with the radio on, so it seemed that Janet's job would be super easy. I was like, that's an like easy baby, yeah. easy money right there. Exactly. Just hang out and just in case he wakes Kid's up. already asleep. I'm just here in case he wakes up and needs something. Mr. Romack, Ed Romack, he then went on to show Janet how to use the shotgun that he left propped up by the front door just in case of emergency. That's adorable. He showed her how to load it and unload it and shoot it just for an extra layer of protection. I know a lot to a lot of people this might sound kind of like, why would you leave a gun around a 13-year-old? But you have to remember this was the South in the 1950s. And this was also a very rural area. So I don't believe this was uncommon practice back then. I mean- no, in a lot of these places and a lot of these towns until the 90s, even into the 90s, yeah. they drove around with shotguns in their... On the back of their their pickup truck. Because yeah. they were going to go hunting. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't for anything other than that or defense. Yeah, and he showed her how to use it just in case. I'm sure as a 13-year-old, I'm just going to say, as a 13-year-old girl, if I'm going to babysit and the guy's like, here's a shotgun in case you need it. Like, what I'm not touching that. What do I need that for? <laughs> what is going on around here? I know, I what are y'all doing around here? <laughs> well, Ed then told Janet to make sure... This is kind of important, so hang on to this. He said, make sure uh, you don't answer the door for anyone, and if anyone does knock, just go ahead and flip the porch light on, like, just to let people know, you know, someone's home. Don't worry about it. And with that, Ed and Ann Romack left for the evening to enjoy a game night with their friends at the Moon Valley Villa, which I looked it up. I believe it's like a lounge of sorts in town, like a... Like an Elks Lodge yeah, or like a VFW like or something like that. Yeah, that's all I can like, find Like a on meeting it. place, basically. Exactly. At around 10.30 p.m. that evening, a young girl called the police station, and she was absolutely frantic. Officer Ray McCowan answered her call, and he stated that she screamed, quote, come quick, over and over. He asked what her name was and where she was calling from, but before she could disclose any of that information, the call was dropped and only a dial tone could be heard. Unfortunately, unlike in the movie When a Stranger Calls, there was no way the police could trace her call being yeah. that it was 1950. It was the 1950s. They have no idea who called, where it came from. And the telephone company's switchboard was at a whole different location than the police station, and it was completely unmanned at that <coughs> late hour. So no one was working the board that night that could help Officer McCowan determine where the call was coming from. So the officer's hands were completely tied. Like, cool, so I got a little girl or a girl that sounds young, in distress, and I have no idea where the fuck I'm supposed to go. Well, it also makes you super thankful for modern technology, right? (laughs) Back at the Moon Valley Villa, Ann Romack decided to call home, as moms do, and check on Janet and Gregory. She's 13, so of course she's going to call and check. Unfortunately, no one answered... Anne's call home. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the first thought in most people's heads when they can't get a hold of the babysitter isn't to completely freak out. No, she's probably in the bathroom or didn't hear the phone ring. In fact, yeah, because it was later. In fact, Anne would later say that she honestly figured Janet had just fallen asleep and not heard the the phone ring. Yeah, yeah, fell asleep on the couch or even upstairs in the room with the kid. Maybe the kid woke up and the radio was on. So the Romax went on enjoying their evening. They returned home at approximately 1.35 a.m., and as they fumbled for their keys at the front door, they noticed that their porch light was on. Odd, since Ed specifically instructed Janet not to turn the porch light on unless there was a knock at the door. Remember that? Yeah. As they looked around outside a bit more, they noticed that all of the window blinds were open, like drawn up. They also found that a bit strange since they had left them closed, but still no reason to be particularly alarmed. Maybe maybe Janet had just opened them, you know, wanted to see outside, but why? Yeah. So as they found their key and inserted it into the lock, they noticed that the front door was already unlocked. Of course, when they left, they had made sure to lock the front door. So I can imagine that this is when alarm bells started to go off. Well, yeah, with all those things combined, at least you're definitely like, what the fuck? The couple pushed open the front door, and there lying on the living room floor, right in front of them on their shag carpet, was 13-year-old Janet Chrisman. She was dead. And warning, guys, this gets a little rough. I'm going to kind of describe what state her body was in. Lovely. 
Next to Janet's body was the Romax landline. It was off the receiver, and it seems that she had been attacked right as she was trying to call the police for help because it was lying by her. Janet was covered in blood and bruises. Her legs were spread apart, and her dress had been pulled up to her chest, and she was wearing one slipper on her foot. Unfortunately, the young girl had been sexually assaulted. She had sustained at least one really serious head injury that was later determined to have been inflicted with a blunt object of sorts. Oh, lovely. On Janet's face, there were a series of scratch marks thought to have been inflicted by her attacker's fingernails. So he was just enraged, animalistic. And this is a bit odd. Janet had multiple deep puncture wounds all over her head that was later determined to have been caused by, get this, Pat, a mechanical pencil. Damn. Yeah, it was, in her, it was in her scalp. Well, that's, that's pure, I mean... It's a it's a weapon of opportunity, I would say. It wasn't Yeah, but the amount of planned. force that you would use for a mechanical pencil to do that kind of damage, that's like straight rage. Like it's beyond rage. It's like like you said, animalistic. Like how did you really gotta try to do that? Also, her attacker had cut the cord from an electric iron that and had tied that tightly around Janet's neck, ultimately strangling her to death. Her official cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation. Janet had died, sadly just two days short of her 14th birthday. That's, so this was, yeah, March 18th. And I mean, yeah, and her birthday was on the 21st. It's awful. That's what it is. Ann Romack, seeing the state of 13-year-old Janet, immediately thought, oh my God, my baby, right? Mm -hmm. So she immediately ran upstairs to check on three-year-old Gregory. Thankfully, Gregory was left completely unharmed, and in fact, he slept through this whole horrific ordeal. Well, thank God. If you remember, too, he has his, he sleeps with his radio on, so, he so probably that probably drowned out a lot of the noise. So Ann and Ed immediately called the police after they checked and made sure their baby was safe. And here's where things get kind of tricky. Okay, so I, I you do you remember I told you that Stewart Road, was, where the Romax house was located, was kind of out in the middle of nowhere on the outskirts of Columbia, right? Well, it actually was right in the middle of two police jurisdictions. I was about to say, it's outside jurisdiction. It didn't belong to one police jurisdiction in particular. So detectives from both different police departments arrived at the scene. And this would eventually cause, as you can imagine, lots of issues. No, not, red tape there. not so much eventually. It's more like from the start. There was well, just a bunch your of issues. Scene. No, it's my crime scene. No, fuck off. When they arrived on scene, there were very clear signs that Janet did not go down without a fight. The little girl fought. I figured that was the scratching and all the blunt trauma. They found blood smears and her fingerprints in the living room as well as on the back door, which to me meant that she tried to flee and run out of the house away from her attacker after she was initially injured, probably hit in the head, and then she ran. Yeah, if, her, if the back door is closed and locked still and her, butt and her, her, her body prints are on it, she's trying to get out. Right. The police also brought in bloodhounds, and the dogs were able to pick up the attacker's scent. They followed that scent approximately one mile down Stewart Road before they lost it, which made investigators believe that Janet's assailant was on foot, which, okay, that makes sense. Mm, maybe. There were footprints. He could have left blood on the car. Like, as he was getting in the car, if he was bleeding and he left some cut and blood was dripping on the car as he got in, it could have been driven or away. Or he parked a mile down the road. Or he parked and a then, mile down yeah, the road. Or- there were footprints found near the back window of the Romac house. And that window was actually shattered, this is weird, using a garden hoe belonging to the Romac family. That garden hoe used to shatter the window was kept inside the house. Very strange. Why would the killer go inside the house to retrieve an object to break a window outside? And the glass was shattered in? We don't, that wasn't specified. We'll get there. So like I was saying before, these two police departments had two very different sets of opinions as to what the heck happened here. We all have a, a yeah. different opinions already. So Their main disagreement was how the killer gained entry in the first place. And I'm sure us as listeners and consumers of the story, we all have thoughts right now. I mean, we do, but I don't have enough evidence to lead one way or another. Let's see if we can get there. Okay. One of the jurisdictions felt that Janet had let the killer into the house, like let him in uh, because she was familiar with him, which I lean more this way. 
It makes sense because the front porch light was on and she would have followed Ed Romack's instructions to turn on the light if there was a knock at the door. However, that wouldn't explain the back window, why why the back window was shattered, unless the killer, of course, broke the window in an attempt to throw off the investigation. Again, they didn't say whether the window was broken in or broken out. Right. Actually, to further support that point, inside the house, just underneath that shattered window, was a freshly polished piano. So I can kind of show you a picture later on, Pat. Um, it's right underneath that window. So if the assailant did break in through that window, he would have had to step or brace himself on that piano in some capacity. Glass would have been all over it. And there were absolutely no palm prints or footprints. And it, it was polished with oil. So there would have been clear, you know, yeah, so something why, on it. It was pristine. I, but that's why I asked, like, if it was broken in or out. Yeah, and that just wasn't specified. Well, to me, broken out would lead me to believe that the suspect was trying to stage like someone broke in the window, but he's just too stupid to fucking realize glass goes in or out. Well, unless he, after he committed the crime thought, what can I do to kind of throw them That's off? What I'm saying. Then take the garden hoe from inside and go outside and then break it. In. But I couldn't tell. I, I, I don't know if there was glass on the piano or not. To do not knowing how much time you have, knowing she called the police or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas you might just smash the window and be like, Oh, they're going to think I broke in. I wish I knew which direction the glass was because I had yeah, thought about that too. But I that's just couldn't a huge find telling it. thing, right? Because if you if you know which way it's going in or out, it, it helps. It helps with one theory or another. That's all. Also, it's important to note that the shotgun that Ed had left propped up by the front door for emergency was completely left untouched. So nobody, she she never obviously Janet never had the opportunity to try to use it against and that's her attacker. Which attacker. To me, you know, to me, that lends it to more your the original theory of someone she knew and and like a rage or passion thing. Because if they just wanted to kill her and there's a shotgun sitting there, they're just gonna grab a shotgun and shoot her with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if they're if it's someone she knows and there's like a rage passion thing going on there, that's why it was so gruesomely violent and and just clawing and beating and stabbing. Right. And the shotgun's sitting right there. She was literally inside the front door. Investigators also noted that the electric iron cord that was used to strangle Janet had been cut using a pair of scissors that was kept in Mrs. Romack's sewing room, the same room where the iron itself was kept. Uh, This told investigators that the killer would have had to be really familiar with the Romack's home in order to locate those items. They were very in very specific places. You know, he could have used so many things. Yeah, unless he was, again, you don't necessarily know how everything was turned up or not. If they're saying everything was normal except for that drawer, then he obviously knew where it was. But he could have just been walking around looking for something to cut it with or strangle her with, you know what I mean? And he found that. Seeing as how two police jurisdictions had disagreements as to what happened to Janet inside the Romac home that night, this really messed up the investigation and caused a lot of issues, which was not ideal because in a small Southern community, a crime like this against a 13-year-old girl absolutely in the 50s. shook them to the core. In the 50s. Right? This is not, sadly, the, the 2000s where bad crimes are much more common. Both police jurisdictions went on to interview absolutely everyone that had anything to do with Janet Christman in any capacity. It's a small town. There's not that many people to talk to. They were able to form a list of potential suspects, but it just baffled everyone that one of their own could have anything to do with the murder of a child. However, this wasn't the first crime of this nature to occur in Columbia, Patrick. Of course not. See, just four years prior, a 20-year-old girl by the name of Mary Lou Jenkins was raped and murdered while home alone in the same fashion as Janet Christman. In fact, this crime occurred just one mile up the road from where Janet was babysitting for the Romax. Mary Lou's mother came home to find her beloved daughter dead on the living room floor. She had been strangled with a cut cord. Does that sound familiar? Absolutely. Around the same time of Mary Lou's murder, Floyd Cochran, a 35-year-old trash man, was arrested for savagely murdering his wife. Once police learned about what he did to his wife, they took him into custody. And police started thinking, hey, I bet this guy is also responsible for Mary Lou's death as well. No reason to think that, but we're just going to go with it. Sure. It's 1950s police work. You killed somebody, so you must have killed the other one. Got it. 
So when they arrested Floyd, police brought him back to the station and interrogated him, I use that very lightly, for 10 hours straight. Not surprisingly, police went on to claim that Floyd had confessed to Mary Lou's rape and murder as well. Floyd Cochran was sentenced to die in the gas chamber on September 26, 1947, for the murders of his wife as well as Mary Lou. However, just a few hours before his execution, he recanted his confession. He claimed that he had absolutely nothing to do with the death of 20-year-old Mary Lou Jenkins. He didn't recant the confession against... He, he admitted that he killed his wife, right. but not Mary Lou. Right. And I tend to believe him. There was just absolutely no evidence tying him to the death of Mary Lou. It's just my opinion. And we've, we've kind of talked about this on so many different cases back the time frame back then. A confession was all you needed. That's Fuck the evidence. If somebody confessed, they were guilty. We'll get, wait till you hear how they got the confession. I was about to say, 10 hours of interrogation, they probably just got him to fucking admit it at some point. In fact, he also went on to state that while being interrogated, police threatened to lynch him publicly unless he confessed. And he believed them 100%. You see, Mr. Cochran was a black man okay. living in Missouri. And yep. his, his grandfather had been accused of raping a white woman and he had been publicly lynched. And uh, Floyd Cochran had witnessed the lynching of his mm-hmm. grandfather. So all the signs point to Mr. Cochran being, I would say, a scapegoat for the murder of Mary Lou Jenkins. And yeah, it's coercion. Yeah, that's not to say that he didn't murder his wife in cold blood. I'm not saying he that. Never, he never said he didn't. He never took that back. However, the powers that be, I think, just didn't play their cards right. And like you said, coercion in regarding to Mary Lou's case. They wanted to close the case. They wanted the time to be at peace. They had no leads. This dude was possible. Fuck it. It's him. Sadly... Mary Lou Jenkins' case is closed. It's not technically unsolved. He well, never reopened it. Yeah. So it's very possible that the wrong man was executed for the death. I was about to say, they him. still killed him, right? Mm-hmm. So they're going to look at it. He said he can recant his statement. He already gave it to us. He's been found guilty, period. Close it out. Done. And you know damn well that the community thought that Floyd Cochran was guilty, and they were never told otherwise. So they were never informed about him recanting his confession. So they all kind of let their guard down thinking that a killer was off the streets, right? Yeah. So after the murder of Janet Chrisman, police could not deny the similarities between her case and Mary Lou's. Oh, I, mean, you, I mean, it's a small town and something like that a happens twice. Identical. Yeah, I was going to say identical kind of killings. Same MO, everything. And only a mile apart. That's the huge part. So they kept talking to anyone and everyone who knew Janet, and one name kept popping up. Robert Mueller. You may recognize this last name, Pat Mueller. Yeah. From earlier in the episode, the Muellers were the other family that Janet was allowed to babysit for. Her parents only allowed her to sit for two families in town. So here's a little about Robert Mueller. He was 27 years old. He had served during World War II as an Army Air Corps captain and had returned home to help with a cafe that his father owned called Mueller Virginia Cafe. He was also a tailor. Some may find that interesting, especially Mm. considering the item used to strangle Janet with. And where the scissors were found. Now get this. Everyone who knew Robert Mueller knew that he always carried around mechanical pencils in his breast pocket. Mm. The Muellers were also best friends with Ed and Ann Romack. So, of course, the Romacks were questioned regarding Robert Mueller. And she knows the family, so it would lend her to believe that she would answer the door for Mr. Mueller. Right. Ed told police that on a few occasions, Robert had told him that he desperately wanted to have sex with a virgin. So gross. Why are people like that? (laughs) What the fuck? It's so gross. And seeing as Janet had babysat several times for the Muellers, Ed said that Robert had made several inappropriate comments about 13-year-old Janet's body. I mean, hell, she was probably even 12 at the time, to be honest, because she had been babysitting for them for quite some time. She's she's still 13. Like, it could have been when she was 11 or 12. Ann Romack told police that Robert just creeped her out. In fact, she said that the day before the killing, Patrick, Robert came over to help Anne sew a dress in her sewing room. While helping her, Robert had allegedly fondled her and made her very uncomfortable. She described Robert, quote, as a man that used his hands, not his words. 
I'm not really sure why the Romax were friends with this douche, but uh, No, whatever. that's what's going through my head. They're like, she's like, he creeps me out. And he's like, he makes all these fucking bad comments. And they're like, oh yeah, we're friends though. <laughs> uh, okay. And get this. You're not going to believe this. On the morning of Janet's death, so March 18th, Robert actually called Janet and asked her if she could babysit for his kids. But she said no. And then she proceeded to tell him that she was babysitting for the mm-hmm. Romax instead. So mm-hmm. he had knowledge of exactly where Janet would be that and night. probably when or around what times at least. Now, remember that night the Romax had attended a game night with their friends at the Moon Valley Villa? Yeah, where was their friends, the Mueller's? Robert Mueller and his wife were in attendance at the party. So you may be asking yourself, how can he be guilty if he was with the Romax that night? Did he go to the bathroom for two hours? Chill. Okay, geez, I'm getting there. Well, a few hours into the party, (laughs) Robert Mueller slipped away for Patrick, your mind reader, approximately two hours. He claimed that he had to go and, quote, talk to a doctor about tending to his son in the middle of the damn night. At 10 o'clock or whatever time. What doctor is on call in the middle of the night? So police were like, okay, let's talk to the doctor. So police went to speak on to speak to the Mueller's doctor, and he said, uh, I never spoke to Robert Mueller regarding his son or anyone else that night. Period. Yeah, I don't have office hours at 10 p.m. or 9 p.m. Pretty suspicious. And it gets more suspicious. The morning after Janet's murder, Robert Mueller called his pal, Ed Romack, and asked, hey, do you want me to come over and help you clean up all the blood at your house? Now- You may think, oh, he's just being a good friend. No, no, not at all. (laughs) However, at that time, only the police, the Romax, and of course, Janet's parents were aware that there was a murder at all in that house. No one knew. Hmm. That's very odd. Very odd. It's very odd that the girl that babysits for both your families and your friends, you're not like, oh my God, I heard what happened. Are you guys okay? What happened? How's the family? He just says, hey, let me clean that shit up with you. And he kept talking. He started telling Ed over the phone his theories about what happened to Janet that night. That he shouldn't even know about. You want to hear it? Well, I'm just saying that he shouldn't even. Uh, Exactly. That's why it's so suspicious. He said, it's unlikely anyone came in through the window. Then he went on to say, and this is kind of a quote. What the fuck does he know about the window? Well, this is Ed Romack's quote about what Robert said. I know. He said, it was probably someone she knew and she just let them in. His most incriminating statement was, the easiest way to get in the house was for someone maybe to come to the door and say, hey, Ed sent me here to get poker chips. So that Janet would think the assailant was sent by Ed since Janet knew Ed and Ann Ann were attending the game night. Like, that's pretty damn specific, Robert. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's it's possible, I guess, but it's very, like, it's more damning to me that he knew about the window if no one's supposed to know about it. So it's it's not looking too good for Robert. By May of 1951, police took all of the evidence they had, which I would, I don't know if it's circumstantial, what else they have, and you'll see why I don't know in a little bit. Um, all the evidence they had compiled against Robert, and they went to the Mueller's house, picked him up, And instead of taking him to the station to question him, they took Mueller to an old abandoned barn outside of city limits. (laughs) Delivering some of that country justice, maybe? What the hell? I'm I'm thinking, like, what are you trying to do? Maybe. And they proceeded to interrogate Mueller there in that barn all night long. At the end of that questioning, Mueller agreed to take a polygraph test. So he was then transported to the state capitol where they had the one polygraph machine. Yeah, the one polygraph in all of Missouri. <laughs> and he actually passed it. But we all know that we shouldn't put too much faith in polygraph tests. There is a reason they are not admissible in court, much less the polygraphs of 1950. I was about to say, 1950. Like, However. You can't even use them now. Since he passed it and they didn't have anything else on him, including no confession, they had to let him go. They had nothing concrete to hold him on. But all of the evidence against Mueller was brought to a judge. And after the judge looked everything over, he arranged for a grand jury to investigate yeah, I was about the to say, case. They can still indict him. There's enough evidence. Since there were two police jurisdictions, though, that had two very different ideas about what happened that night, 
the jury were presented with two extremely conflicting theories. An agreement just could never be reached. Therefore, Robert Mueller was never charged with the rape and murder of Janet Chrisman or Mary Lou Jenkins, but he wouldn't be because her case was technically closed. Right, right, right. In fact, Robert would even go on to sue the police for $400,000. He would end up losing that lawsuit, though. Not surprisingly, Robert Mueller relocated his family to Tucson, Arizona after joining the Air Force. And I'm sure he was quite eager to get the hell out of Columbia after that ordeal. So small towns already like he's been indicted. Small towns like this motherfucker. He's walking around everywhere he's going. Everyone's whispering, going, that's the guy. Mueller died in 2006 at the age of 83 years old. And Janet's case remains unsolved to this day. And although Mary Lou Jenkins' case is very much technically unsolved since Floyd Cochran was sentenced to death for her murder, many have questioned if it is or not. So for over 70 years, the Chrisman family has gone without answers. Unfortunately, Janet's parents passed away without justice Mm. ever being served regarding their daughter's murder. Her family, as well as the Romax, strongly believe that Robert Mueller was involved with Janet's murder. I think everybody does at this point. Now... I could have stopped here. I know you could have. But there's a pretty large consensus that Mueller is guilty. However, in my research for this case, I stumbled upon a news article written by a staff writer, Anonymous, Uh at the Columbia Daily Tribune in uh, 2013. Okay. In 2013, a team of documentary journalists from Gulp, G-U-L-P Pictures in um, New York City, went to Columbia, Missouri, for three days and gathered all the info they could on Janet Christman's case. They even interviewed surviving members of Janet's friend group and anyone who had anything to do with the case back then, which was not an easy task because since at that time, this was a 63-year-old case. Yeah. Even her friends are going to be almost 80. Right. They interviewed former Columbia police chief Paul, I think it's Chevens, Paul Chevens, And he talked about how not solving the Janet Chrisman murder had always troubled him and haunted him. Well, the morning after that interview was published, a woman named Lois Terry, who was one of Janet's old school friends, so she was still alive. Okay. She called the reporter and told that reporter an absolutely chilling tale. Lois said that one week before Janet's murder, she herself was babysitting at a home located on West Boulevard, uh, not too far from Stewart Road, when there was a knock at the door. I'm not clear, and the article wasn't clear, if she answered the door or maybe just looked out the window to catch a glimpse of the man knocking. However, Lois stated that she never would forget the evil features of the man that she believes, uh, and she believes that she was one— of his intended victims like this. No doubt in her mind, this was, he was there to kill her. And this was the same guy that killed Janet. It must've been, it was just a week before Janet's murder. Yeah. Maybe same he couldn't get to her. So he just waited yeah. and found someone else. Thankfully, Lois was left unharmed that night, but he scared her so bad that she never took another babysitting job ever again. Oh shit. Well, fast forward seven years and Lois and her now husband, a man named Bill, happened to be hanging out with a new friend, an elderly woman. Well, that elderly woman introduced the couple to her husband, and Lois swears that her husband was the killer, the same man she saw that night while babysitting. So Lois told her husband. However, her husband instructed her to just keep quiet. Shut up. Don't say anything. And she did. Until 2013, Bill had died, and then she read that somebody reporters were looking into this case again. So um, when she read the interview with ex-police chief uh, Chevens, um, she had to call these journalists and talk to them. Now, these documentary journalists have this man's name. However, I sadly do not, probably because he is not a formal suspect. So, you know, they're not going to well, release his name. Yeah, if they release it, then they could be sued for libel, slander, all that kind of stuff. However... Armed with this information, the journalist found that this man allegedly had a record for being a peeping Tom, as well as a record of domestic violence. He was, uh, I think, arrested for spousal abuse on several occasions. Well, I mean, it just proves that he's creepy and violent. So the journalist headed to the Columbia Police Department to search 
records and fingerprints from around um, the time frame of 1946 to 1950. And there were absolutely none in relation to this man. No one knew where this man's records were. However, what they did discover was, remember how police brought in bloodhounds um, at the crime scene to follow the killer scent down Stewart Road, Pat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, come to find out, the dogs followed the scent right down Stewart Road to West Worley Street, which was about half a mile away from the Romack house. This mystery man who scared Lois so bad, guess what street he lived on? West Worley. Mm. That's where his house was. So he was in walking distance. So he walked to the first Probably girl's house, why, mm-hmm. tried to kill her and didn't happen. Or maybe he was escalating at the time. They then decided to go to the sheriff's department, and the journalist did. And to their surprise, <laughs> there was an absolutely no evidence pertaining to the Chrisman case at all. No blood evidence, no fingerprint evidence, no footprint evidence, or skin samples, nothing. So the journalist found out, why wouldn't the police departments have the evidence? The journalist found out that since, remember, there was two different police jurisdictions involved in this case, mm-hmm. that the then-presiding judge, uh, Frank Conley, instructed both departments, um, they give him the evidence from the Chrisman case for safekeeping. And get this, the courthouse where all of the Chrisman evidence was stored underwent renovation some time ago, and all of it went missing. So it's not like we can look at it with fresh eyes and reopen this case. What the fuck? So I do not have a new suspect to name, unfortunately, but Lois believes that Robert Mueller is innocent and that she knows 100% who the murderer is because she encountered him herself. However, I feel like the chances of it remaining unsolved are pretty high, especially because there's no evidence. Yeah, you know, yeah, unfortunately, I think so. I hope I was clear in that bonus. You were. You were very clear that, you know, someone else a week before had somebody come to their house in very similar circumstances, Mm -hmm. really creepy, weirded her out. And she saw it, like, when she saw him, like, you've seen, we've we've all seen pictures of serial killers. And some people just look fucking evil. You're not going to forget that when it scares you. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I get that. It gives me a lot of uh, Hinterkaifeck type vibes, though. It is the bloodhound chasing. That kind of raises, like, is it? Now I'm confused because at first, well, I'll talk about that later, but okay. it does make you wonder if that's why Robert Mueller, in fact, passed the polygraph test. Like, was he innocent? And it's strange because if you look up the murder of Janet Christman, Pat, Robert Mueller is the one just across the board, the number one suspect of Janet's murder. Like, everyone thinks Justin, justice wasn't served because he did it. However, after stumbling upon this, I'm not so sure anymore. I mean, I just don't know. I don't have evidence pointing either way, any concrete evidence. I have circumstantial out the wazoo. You have circumstantial out the wazoo, more for Robert Mueller. For this other guy, you have the 60-year-old account. Yeah. Yeah, of exactly. Someone, of someone that scared a girl when she was babysitting. You know what I mean? She was, yeah. He didn't attack her. He just scared the shit out of her. Yeah, that we know of. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that we Yeah, because it wasn't clear. We don't have a lot of details other than her 60-year-old recant, right. uh, re- recount of what happened. So it's like... Well, exactly. My next point was if it was just Lois's word, I may have an issue believing that someone else was responsible. However, her story coupled with not only the loss of evidence and the bloodhounds tracking his scent, effectively that leaves me with more questions than answers now. It definitely adds credibility to her theory of it, right? There's all these other things happening that you can't yeah. tell it either way. There's things leaning credibility towards her story. Right. But at the same time, there's way more circumstantial leaning towards Robert. Mm-hmm. Anyways, guys, 13-year-old Janet Christman was buried in Memorial Park Cemetery in Columbia, Missouri. And this is really sweet. This, this touched me. She was buried wearing the burgundy suit that she worked Aww. so very hard to save up her money for. And that suit was the whole reason she was babysitting that fateful night in the first place. So now she's forever wearing it. It's her heart. That's sad. My heart absolutely breaks for her parents and her sisters, who are still alive, by the way. Yeah, they've never been able to have justice. Right. Who knows? I know they always wondered over the years what kind of woman Janet would have grown to be. And it's, it's unthinkable to me that a human being can so callously murder anyone, but a 13 year old girl who's doing nothing but babysitting is something. 
like my brain can't compute. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's hard to understand. But next time you guys are watching a scary movie where the babysitter gets a phone call, now you know where the inspiration unless behind it came. Unless it's what's your favorite scary movie when he calls. Yeah, that's actually that's it's it, case. to be honest with you, it kind of lends itself to this. Like Scream almost pulled that bit from the with when Drew a Barrymore. Calls. Yeah, was it Drew Barrymore? Oh, uh, there's so many of them. Yeah, yeah it was Drew Barrymore. Black Christmas was another one. But I'm just saying the idea of the of Ghostface calling and taunting the girl home alone. Yeah, it's very very similar to when a stranger calls. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's a it's a terrifying situation to be in. I can't imagine being in a situation like that at 13. I mean, just. Oh, I'm 40 almost, and I can't I imagine say, me. <laughs> I'm a 40-year-old ex-military vet. If I was home alone and someone called me and said some fucked up shit like, I'm going to kill you, I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> I know. I'd saying. be sitting in the living room with a bottle of Jack or some beers and a couple guns around me with the dogs. Like, let's fucking do this. Like, come on. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm just saying it would still fucking freak me out. Yeah. So, so that let alone poor being girl, a 13-year-old girl. I mean, she's just and such a hard worker. It's just. So sad, and her poor parents. I I couldn't find anywhere. I would have loved to dove more into like her her parents and like their. I'm sure they just kind of kept to themselves over the years. Yeah, I was about to say. You usually see two. Sadly, when these kind of events happen, we've covered mm-hmm. a bunch of young girls or young kids getting killed. You see two reactions, right? You see mm-hmm. one family that their way of coping with it is it's becoming very a, vocal. I was about involved. to say becoming an advocate, mm-hmm. right? Like whatever. You know, charities or nonprofits or whatever movements they can do. Mm-hmm. They, they be, that's that's their way of healing. Yeah. And a lot of other people just withdraw from it. Yeah. Just, you know, kind of say, I need to move out of the town. I need to move away from everything, try to restart my life and just. They also, they may have very well advocated, but it's just, just the reporting back then. You know, I was about to say, it's, it's not like advocating when you're, it's a 2007 murder. Yeah, exactly. It's on social media. Yeah, exactly. 1950s. They weren't on Facebook back then. In the 1950s, if it didn't make the front page of the paper, it was what, in the obituaries? Yeah. At best? Yeah. So. Well, guys, that's all for me today. And um, if you're not on our Patreon, you'll be listening to this on Halloween. So happy Halloween. And stay safe out there. Get lots of candy. Patreon gets it early. Yep. Patreon gets it early. (laughs) We love all of you guys. Exactly. Patrons or not. Be good to each other, and we will see you same time next week.